Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith Covenant Church. If you're new here, my name is James. I am one of the pastors, and you guys are here at a good time. We just last week kicked off our new sermon series in the book of 1 Timothy. We're calling it House Rules, and I don't know if I'm the only one that kind of wants to sit up here during the service, like the, the comfy seat, stretch out, try not to fall asleep. But we are going through the book of 1 Timothy, looking at the house rules that Jesus set up for his church. He created the church. He makes the rules. And I hope you have your Bible today because we are going to be going through 1 Timothy verse by verse, looking at what Paul tells Timothy about the church and how to live. And I want you to have your Bible so you can read it for yourself. Now, last week, if you were here with us, our lead pastor, Pastor Kevin, started us out in the book, and he told us a lot about the author of the book, the Apostle Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So Paul gave his authority that he was an apostle appointed by God. We learned about how Paul grew up as a Pharisee, a very religious Jew who was passionate about Judaism. And when the church started coming, he was one of the chief persecutors who would go and arrest Christians, have them killed, stoned, hated the church, hated Jesus, till one day he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, got radically converted, saved, and went from being the chief persecutor to the chief promoter. Started preaching about how Jesus was the promised Messiah. And he started going out. He told the apostles, you guys go to the Jews. I will go to the Gentiles. And so Paul started going out throughout Eurasia on missionary trips, sharing the gospel, planting churches, raising up leadership. And then he'd go back around and he would visit the churches to strengthen and encourage them. And he's writing this letter to a guy named Timothy. And Timothy was someone that Paul met on his first missionary journey in a place called Lystra. He was traveling and he came upon a young man named Timothy. We see that in Acts 16, verse 1. Here's what we know about Timothy so that we can understand who he was, kind of his personality, so that we can see what they were wrestling with in the Ephesian church and how he needed to fix it. So Timothy had a mother who was Jewish and a father who was Greek. We don't know much about his dad, what he believed or taught Timothy, other than that we know he was Greek. He was not a Jew. But what we do know is that his mom was Jewish, and his mom, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, taught Timothy from an early age about the scriptures. They taught him to follow Jesus. So Timothy grew up in the faith, being taught by his mother and his grandparents. We know that when Paul was talking to Timothy, when Timothy was traveling with him, Timothy was young. We're going to come up on this in a few chapters that Paul tells Timothy, don't let people look down on you because you are young. That Timothy was dealing, we're going to see here today, with some false teachers who maybe were older and thought they were wiser. And so they looked down on Timothy because of his age. And so Paul says, don't let people look down on you. So we know that Timothy was young. We know he was perhaps a bit timid. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he tells Timothy, we have a spirit, not of fear, but a spirit of power. And so perhaps Timothy, because of his age, perhaps his personality, he's not as bold, fiery, as outgoing as Paul. He was a bit timid. And then we know that Timothy had some physical struggles. Paul will tell him here at the end of the book to drink some wine and not just water for his stomach and for his frequent 
illnesses. And we're not sure if it was some kind of medical condition that maybe the alcohol and the wine would help clear up, or if it was just the fact that the water of that day was um, dirty. It had bacteria. It would make you sick. And so if he wasn't mixing it with wine, which is what they would do to purify the water, maybe that was making it sick. But we have in Timothy, a, a young guy who's probably a bit timid, who deals with some health issues that are ongoing and recurring. And so this for him, is going to be a difficult assignment for what Paul is going to leave him in. Paul, though, saw in Timothy who he could be. Paul believed in Timothy the same way that Barnabas had believed in Paul. Because he calls Timothy in 1 Corinthians 4, he calls him my beloved and faithful child, someone he loves, someone he trusts and believes in. He called him in 1 Thessalonians. He said that Timothy is our brother and God's co-worker. So not just Paul's co-worker, he's God's co-worker in the ministry. And then in Philippians 2.20, he says, I have no one else like Timothy who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. So Paul says, Timothy here is like my top deputy. I don't have anyone else on his level that cares for the churches like Timothy does. And here in 1 Timothy, he calls him his true son in the faith. So Paul loves Timothy. Paul believes in Timothy. He had sent Timothy on several missions to Macedonia, to Philippi. But now he tells Timothy, I need you to stay in Ephesus while I go on to Macedonia. That's verse 3. He says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Now, I can imagine Timothy probably would rather go with Paul, his mentor, his friend, go travel on a mission trip. But Paul says, I need you to stay. And this is difficult when you have a close friend, when you don't want to leave them, when you don't want to go out, don't want to multiply. But Paul and Timothy believed that God's glory was greater than their story. God's work was more important than their wishes or their desire to stay together as close friends. And so Paul goes to Macedonia he leaves Timothy there in Ephesus to clean up the church. This is a difficult assignment for Timothy, all right? This church is a hot mess. He's young. He's a bit timid. He's got health issues. But Paul says, I need you to clean up the church. And so a lot of this letter is going to be Paul telling Timothy what needs to be corrected, what needs to be set straight in the church. And we're going to see here that there are two different errors that we're not careful we can make as Christians. And the way I would illustrate it is this. I used to live in California in a place called the Central Valley. And our claim to fame was we had the worst air quality in all of America. <laughs> Woohoo! Yay for us. But on the three or four days that the air was clear, you could look out in the distance and you could see the Sierra Nevada mountains, the purple mountains. Most of the year they'd have snow caps on the top, really pretty. And we were about an hour and a half from Yosemite National Park. So we could go out there for day trips. We could go hiking, see the mountains, the waterfalls, just a beautiful area of God's creation. And one Saturday, a friend and I got up super early, drove up there so we would be at the start of the trail as the sun came up. And we went on a hike. It's about seven and a half, eight miles each way to a place called Clouds Rest. It's about 10,000 feet high. And you walk out there and you're going through the woods for about the whole thing. And when you get to the last quarter mile or so, you get out of the woods and you get up and you're on the very ridge of the mountain walking out towards the peak. And you have rocks that are about four, maybe five, six feet wide. And then on the left side, there's a steep hill that if you fall, you're going to have a really bad day. 
On the right side, there's a steep thing that goes down about 100 feet that would be fun for about 100 feet, and then it drops off thousands of feet below you. So again, a really bad day. And so your goal is to stay on that little four-foot path, right? You don't want to go to the left. You don't want to go to the right. You want to stay on this four-foot path as you are hiking. And for us, in many ways, it's the same way. Our goal to stay on the path is to stand firm on this book, the Word of God. On the one hand, where you can fall off is you start adding to the Bible. Some of this comes across in legalism, adding rules to the Bible, saying, thus saith the Lord when the Lord doesn't saith, and saying, these are the rules and regulations that you have to follow when it's not in this book. And I've spent, unfortunately, some of my childhood in some of these, where women are told, if, you don't have, if you're wearing pants, you can't be a Christian. Guys are told, if you have on shorts, you can't be a Christian. They start adding rules to the Bible that aren't in there. That's the one cliff as we start adding to the Bible. Or maybe we start taking outside sources outside the Bible, other teachers, books, podcasts, other things, and we start putting them at the level of the Bible we're adding to the Bible. The other cliff on the other side you can fall off of is you start taking away from the Bible. Stuff that's in the Bible, we say, well, that's not really true. And I think the poster child of that is a famous guy by the name of Thomas Jefferson. You may have heard of him. He, um, he had a Bible called the Jefferson Bible where he literally took a penknife and cut out the verses that he didn't like. Any verses dealing with Jesus' deity, anything miraculous, and he kept the rest of the scriptures, so basically a book of morality. And we may not actually cut it out, but I was joking with a friend this week. He's like, oh, I don't cut it out. I just keep a Sharpie with my Bible, and I just <laughs> cross out the verses I don't like. And, you know, we may not even do that, but sometimes functionally we do that, right? Because let's be honest. Let's be honest. How many of you, raise your hand, we're in church, don't lie. How many of you would say there is at least one verse in the Bible that I don't like? All right. I'm with you. I could give you a whole list. Love your neighbor? Come on, God. I mean, love your enemy? Come on. Seriously, that person? Bless them, pray for them? Lord, if I don't... If I'm not willing to forsake everything, I can't be your disciple, like everything. There's verses that we don't like. But as Christians, we've got to stay right in the middle, not add to Scripture, not subtract from Scripture. Stay right down the middle with what the Bible says. And so this is what the church in Ephesus was dealing with. Look at the end of verse 3 there. He says, to Timothy, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So there's two issues here in the church. One is false doctrine. False doctrine is anything that is contrary to true doctrine. So anything that is contrary to the Bible, the Bible says this, this says something opposite of that, that is false doctrine. And so there were people in the church who were teaching false doctrine. They were teaching stuff that was opposite of what the scripture says, stuff that did not agree with scripture. Whereas the orthodox Christian teaching is that this is our final authority for faith and practice. It trumps everything else. And our job as Christians, my job as a pastor, believe it or not, is pretty boring. It's to take what's in here and give it to you. I don't get to change it, tweak it, add to it, subtract from it. I take what's in here and I give it to you. 
and you take what I give you, and you give it to someone else. It's kind of like great-grandma's mac and cheese recipe, right? You don't change it. You take it, you pass it on to your kids, and then your grandkids. But in a more serious way, our job is to do that. Paul tells Timothy this in 2 Timothy 2. He says, The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So Paul says, The stuff you see in me, I've given to you. You give it to other reliable people who will teach others. So four generations of discipleship. You take what's given to you and you pass it along. You don't add to it. You don't subtract, subtract from it. You don't change it or tweak it. You pass it along. That's our job. But the other issue they were facing is that people were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies, all right? When you read this genealogies, this isn't the genealogies in the Bible. Those genealogies show the record from Adam to Noah, from Noah to David, from David down to Jesus, showing us that Jesus is the Messiah in the line of David. Those are important to prove who Jesus is. What he's talking about here, these myths and endless genealogies, these are outside sources, the oral law, the tradition. He later calls them Jewish myths. These are things outside the Bible. And what are these people doing? They are devoting themselves to that. They are taking these outside sources that they're devoted themselves to studying, to listening to those things rather than the Bible. So if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 24, the early church, what does it say they devoted themselves to? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching is what they got from Jesus they passed on. So the early church devoted themselves to Jesus' teaching. Now here in Ephesus, you have these teachers devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogy, stuff outside the Bible that they were putting on the level of the Bible, adding to the Bible, devoting themselves to studying those things. This led to two problems. All right, verse 5, or the end of verse 4. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So the two problems they have is that this was leading to controversial speculations. It was promoting, bringing out controversial speculations, and here is why. When you don't have a standard then it's just my opinion against your opinion, against his opinion, against her opinion. There's no way to judge it. So if we were to come up here and argue about this pulpit, how wide this is, I would have my opinion. You would have your opinion. We would all have an opinion as to how many inches it is, but there's no way to prove if I'm right or you're wrong, correct? Unless we bring out the standard, all right? I got my standard here, a tape measure. I can measure it and get the dimensions of the pulpit. This is the standard. If I don't line up to it, I'm wrong. If you don't line up to it, you're wrong because we have a standard. And by the way, if you're one of those like me that you want to fill in all the blanks, it's 20 and 5, 20 inches and 5 sixteenths. So if, you want to, if you're like me and that's going to bug you the whole service, you can put that in your notes. That's how big it is. Um, but we, we, if we don't have that standard... There's no way to judge who's right and wrong. So it ends into speculations. Well, these myths and genealogies, they start speculating about that. 
what's true and what's false. It's controversial because one person thinks this and another person thinks that, and they've gotten rid of the standard. And so Paul says, this is not good. And then the second problem this is causing is it's not advancing God's work, which is by faith. So they're spending their time arguing about this over here that Paul's going to call meaningless talk rather than fulfilling, doing, advancing God's work. Because here's the way it works. Right doctrine leads to love. Love leads to God's work. Paul says here the goal of his command. So his command to stop teaching false doctrine, his command to stop devoting themselves to endless, um, endless genealogies and myths, the goal of that is love. So right doctrine leads to love, and then love leads to God's work. And the way that works is when we have right doctrine, when we understand who we are, that we are sinners. We're going to see this in a minute. That we have disobeyed God. We have broken his law. We deserve death separation from God forever in hell. When we understand that and we see that God loved us and sent Jesus to die for us, when we understand that doctrine, that leads us to love God, that he would love someone as bad as me. That in turn, when I see everyone in this world as people made in God's image that he loves, how can I help but love them? How can I look at someone that Jesus died for and hate that person. When I have right doctrine, that leads to love for God and love for others. When I have that love for God, I love his mission. When I love others, I love them and I want them to be saved. And so that leads to advancing God's work that I go out, preach the gospel, and make disciples. That's the way it's supposed to work. But Paul said, these guys are over here now, controversial speculation, sitting and arguing over stuff that's not true, stuff that not, doesn't matter, rather than advancing God's work. This love comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It comes from a pure heart. When I am reading God's word, when I am letting God's word read me, that when I read a verse and I say, ooh, I don't quite line up to God's word, then I start changing myself to line up to God's word. When God's word reads me, that gives me a pure heart because I'm living the right way. It gives me a good conscience. I can sleep at night knowing that I'm doing the right thing because I am living according to God's word. And then love comes from a sincere faith. Non-hypocritical is the word there. Love comes from a non-hypocritical faith. And sincere is a Latin word. Sin meaning without, sere meaning wax. And where this comes from is back in the day, in those times, they would make like clay jars, clay bowls. They would bake them in the oven. And sometimes when they would bake them and the clay would harden, you'd get a, you'd get a crack down the side of it. And so what they would do is they would take wax and they would fill in the crack and then they would paint the whole thing. And so it looked like a perfectly solid bowl or pot. But then you take that and you put your soup in it and you put it on the fire to heat it up, and what happens? The wax melts, and it runs out everywhere, and you lose your supper. And so they would put on the ones that did not have wax, they would write sin sere on there, without wax. Not hypocritical, it's real. It's not fake with a painted veneer and wax on the inside. 
it's true, it's real. And so when we have that sincere faith, not putting on the best face for church, but our faith is sincere, deep within us, we have a good conscience because we're living according to God's word. God's word has read us, we have a pure heart. Then we love God, we love others, and it leads to advancing God's mission. But Paul says these teachers have departed from these three things. Rather than focusing on life change, rather than focusing on action, rather than focusing on a sincere faith, a good conscience, they have departed into what he calls meaningless talk. Talking about stuff that doesn't matter. Talking about stuff that has no basis in reality. It's meaningless. He says they want to be teachers of the law. So they want to stand up there with the authority. Everyone look up to them at how awesome they are teaching the law. But he says they have no idea what they're talking about. They don't even know, but they're confident. Do you see that? They're wrong, but they're confident. And so the thing we have to understand, I think, is that confidence is not correctness. Confidence is not wisdom. You can pull out a podcast, a YouTube, a book, a sermon, whatever, and you can find people that are super confident in what they say, and they're also super wrong, right? So be careful that just because someone says this is right and I know it, doesn't always mean that they are. Again, we need a standard. When someone says, this is super right and I know it, don't take their confidence, take this. Compare what they say, does it match up to this as our standard? And if it does, then yay, they're right. And if it doesn't, then they are wrong, whether they're confident or not. Paul says they have these teachers meaningless talk, mumbo-jumbo, but they're so confident talking about how it's right that they're leading people astray, leading people away from God's work. They're adding stuff onto Scripture, taking these myths and genealogies, these oral traditions, and they are adding it into the Scripture. And so so then the, the question becomes, when you have people who say, here's the Bible, and then I'm going to pile all this stuff on top of it, and all of this is Scripture. The temptation is to throw the whole thing out, throw the baby out with the bath. But Paul says that's not the case. Don't throw out the whole law because some people have corrupted it. The law itself is not bad, and that's where we turn to in verse 8. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. So the law is good if you know what it is there for. The law is there to show us our sin. It is the measuring tape that shows us this is God's standard that you cannot measure up to. That's what the law is for. He tells us this in Romans 7, 7. He says, well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. So the law showed Paul his sin that coveting is wrong. The law shows us that our sin is wrong. And so what Paul's going to do now is he's going to go through and give us a list of sins. And aren't you excited you came here today to hear a list of sins that you don't measure up to? Woohoo for us, right? So Paul's going to do that. And what you're going to notice as we go through these is it's the Ten Commandments, all right? He goes through the Ten Commandments in order, one right after the other. So this isn't Paul just saying this for the Ephesian church. This is universal application for all of us. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. 
We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So the law shows us God's standard that we can't measure up to. And he talks, starts out by saying the law is for lawbreakers and for rebels. So the lawbreakers are those that ignore the law. I don't have to follow it. The rebels are those that I'm opposed to the law. I don't even like it. Paul says the law is for you to show you that that is sin. He says it's for the ungodly and the sinful. These are those that are guilty of irreverence. Maybe they just don't care. The first category would be people that maybe grew up in the church. They know the law. They know what it says, but they've decided not to follow it. The second category, the ungodly and sinful, maybe it's just those that just don't care. Isn't that a lot of our culture? I don't know why I should care about Jesus. I don't know why I should care about that church stuff. My life is good without all that. I just don't care. And then there's the unholy and the irreligious. These are the secular that have no sense of what is sacred. These are the people that maybe mock religion, hate religion. Paul says the law is for them. And if you notice, all of these deal with our relationship with God. So this is the first four commandments, that you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make or bow down to idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain and remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. So the law is for those that don't have a right relationship with God, that ignore the law, that don't care for the law, that don't care, don't want to know what God says. He says the law is for them. Then we get to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Paul takes it a little in a more extreme way here, he says the law is for those who kill their fathers or mothers. Literally, the word is father murderer and mother murderer, saying those that kill their parents, those that don't honor their parents, whether you go so far as to kill them, whether you just dishonor them by the way you talk about them, by the way you treat them. Paul says if you fall short of honoring your parents, you are not up to God's standards. You can't kill your parents. Sorry if you got a bad mom or dad, but that's what the Bible says. All right, he says, the sixth commandment is thou shalt not kill. And he says, the law is for murderers. This shows if you kill people, you are short of God's standard. Jesus, of course, made this a deeper issue, an issue of the heart. That if you hate somebody, it's the same as killing them. And so whether you literally kill somebody, whether you have hatred in your heart, it shows that you don't measure up. God's standard. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Paul takes this and he expands on it in kind of a general way, and then he expands on it in more of a specific way for us. So the general way is he states that the law is for the sexually immoral. However you want to be immoral, there's lots of ways to choose from, Paul says that you fall short if you do not measure up to God's standard of sexuality. And so what we have to understand here, if we're going to understand these, is we have to understand what we would call a biblical sexual ethic. When you take all the verses in the Bible and you put them all together, what does the Bible teach us about human sexuality? And it's going to give us three basic 
principles that are important for us to understand. The first principle is this. God made people male and female. There's only two genders or sexes. Your gender aligns with your biological sex, and you don't get to choose. God gives you as a male or as a female. And you know what? This difference is a wonderful thing. The strengths and the weaknesses come together in a beautiful way. They complement each other, and these differences should be celebrated by us the way God made women and the way God made men. They're both equal in value and worth. God does not see one above the other. And the really cool thing is God goes out of his way to illustrate this in the Garden of Eden because it says that he made Adam and then he says out of the dust of the ground he made one of each of the animals and brought it to Adam to see what he would call them. And this is not God's done creating stuff and so he can't think of a name for a giraffe or a hippopotamus. This is not God saying, Adam, you get to name all these. He is looking for, is any of these animals Adam's equal? And it says Adam named all the animals but there was not found one suitable for him. He looked at all the animals and said, they're all below me. They're not my equals. So if you know the story, God puts Adam to sleep, takes out a rib, makes a woman out of it, and he brings her to Adam. And Adam says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. When he sees the woman, he says, here is my equal. And so God made male. God made female, equal in worth, value, different, but it's something to be celebrated by us. The second principle we see in Scripture is that God created marriage to be a union between one man and one woman for a lifetime. He said that men and women should leave their parents and be united in marriage, and his good design is that they remain married until one of them dies. This is God's perfect design, his plan from the beginning, instituted in the Garden of Eden. So marriage then is created by God, not by culture or society. He created it, he gets to set the boundaries, and he doesn't really care what our culture or any culture believes or thinks. So God made male and female. God's design was that one man, one woman be married for life. And then the third principle of a biblical sexual ethic is that any sort of sexual activity outside of that one man and one woman for life is against God's design. That's the sexual immorality that Paul is talking about. So this is going to include things like fornication, which is sexual relations between two single people, adultery, which is sexual relations where one is married to someone else. This includes lust, such things as pornography. This is pedophilia, bestiality, you could go down the list. Anything outside one woman, one man, in marriage, it's what the Bible would call sexual immorality. God's good design is for one man and one woman to enjoy the beauties of sex within a marriage, to have children, fill the earth with God worshipers, and anything outside of that design is sin. Now, for those that say, yes, Sexual activity is okay within marriage. But we have gay marriage, same-sex marriage today in this country, so doesn't that apply to them too? Well, this is where Paul gets specific and out of the generalities because you see the next sin he lists there is for those, the laws for those practicing homosexuality. 
So Paul upends this line of reason, of reasoning because he states that any sexuality outside of marriage is against the law, but he clearly then adds on to that homosexuality is a sin. And there's no clarifying phrases or disclaimers about power differentials, lack of consent, outside of the bounds of marriage. He clearly says those practicing homosexuality is a sin. So it is in and of itself a sin, contrary to God's law and his good design, whether within the bounds of what our culture would call same-sex marriage or outside, the Bible does not give any situations in which homosexuality is not a sin. And so again, with this being the Bible, we have to stand on what it says, not what we want, not what we wish were to be true. And if those, if you're thinking, well, maybe this is just for the Ephesian church, you know, that church was a hot mess just their culture. This is just for them. Well, do you really want to argue then that I can murder my mom? You know, hey mom, that thing about I can't kill you, that's just for the Ephesian church. Do you really want to tell your spouse, hey, I can cheat on you because that was just for the Ephesian church? Try that one and see how that works out, right? No, this is based on the Ten Commandments, all right? So this is God's law for all ages, all cultures, all peoples. So church, this is an area that like we heard last week, we're going to be living counterculture in our current culture. If we hold to this, we're swimming upstream, not going to be popular. You may lose your friends. You may lose your job. You may lose family members if you stand firm on this. The question is, will we align with scripture or with our culture? with God's word or with our friends, with what the Bible clearly teaches or with what we wish were true because we have loved ones who struggle in this area. So let me acknowledge two things pastorally here before we move on to more sense. Yeah, right? So the first thing we have to acknowledge is that we live in a world where dreams don't come true, right? This isn't Disney that they live happily ever after. Dreams are broken. We live in a world that is broken by sin, that has messed up all sorts of things in this world. And so there are some out there who are single, who want to be married, to enjoy the companionship and the beauty of sex within marriage, but God has not brought that for them. There are those who are married, who long to have children, to fill the earth with God worshipers, but they experience infertility and they either can't have any kids or they have fewer than they want. There are those who have been abused, who have been so damaged in trust and psychologically that they can't experience well the joys of a healthy marriage or relationship. There are those whose lives have been wrecked by infidelity, divorce, adultery, who are forced to walk a daily, painful, difficult road. There are those who struggle with gender dysphoria. They wonder how I ended up in a body that doesn't seem to match what I want to be true. And there are those who struggle with same-sex attraction, who may never marry someone of the opposite sex, have a family, because they don't feel that attraction. And so for us as a church, we do have to acknowledge that there are those who live in deep, daily pain because of the world we live in. It is not our job to take these issues and beat people over the head with them. All right? That is not our goal. We need to listen to their pain and have compassion on them. Yes, we call them to repentance. 
We call them to righteous living, whether it's an addiction to opposite sex pornography, whether it's same-sex relationship. We call all people to repentance and righteous living, but at the same time, we can sit with them in their suffering, walk alongside them, and love them. Remember, right doctrine leads to love. We can't look down on those who are not like us, like the self-righteous Pharisee. Lord, I thank you that you did not make me like him or her. And the second thing we have to acknowledge is if you look in your Bible, homosexuality is not written in all caps. It's not bolded, highlighted. There's no fire emojis there highlighting it out as the sin to be avoided. And if we're not careful, we like to pick the sins that we don't struggle with. We like to magnify those sins so that by comparison, our sins look small. We magnify the abortion. Oh, they killed their baby so that our anger and gossip and unkindness look small. And I don't have to deal with that because they're so bad. We look at the one who struggles with homosexuality and, oh, that's so bad, so that I don't have to struggle with my addiction to porn or my whatever sin it is. We magnify other people so that ours looks small. So whether you struggle with same-sex lust or opposite-sex lust, the law still points out your sin. Whether you struggle with lying or with immorality, the law still points out your sins. This list should not puff you up. And if you read this list and it puffs you up that, ha, I am not on there, you are reading it wrong. (laughs) This list ought to drive you to humility, repentance, and gratitude that God would love me. I am all over this, and yet God loves me. It's a church that we stand firm. We don't get to take out parts of the Bible that our culture doesn't like. This calls us often to live counterculturally. But you know what? Our posture is not just we hate culture and we beat up against it. We stand firm on what the Bible says. Because the interesting thing is that what is countercultural changes by the day and the week and the year. 200 years ago, if I were a pastor in South Carolina and I were to stand up and preach on this sexual immorality, homosexuality, my culture would agree with me, right? Let's look at the next verse. The law is for, the, is for slave traders. If I stood up 200 years ago in South Carolina and said, chattel slavery is a sin, would my culture have agreed with me? No. I'd have been run out of the church, run out of town, maybe beaten or killed. Countercultural back then was the courage to say stealing people from their home country, their family, bringing them here against their will to force them into slave labor is a sin. It wouldn't have been popular back then, but there were people that taught the truth, that stood firm. And it took hundreds of years, but the culture eventually changed. We're in a point today where when I say 
chattel slavery is a sin. Human trafficking is bad. Our culture agrees with that, right? You don't see anyone out there saying, woo, human trafficking, right? Our culture agrees with that now. People stood firm with love and they made a difference. And so for those that have lost hope in our culture, if we stand firm with love, share the gospel. It may not happen in your lifetime or my lifetime, but God can shift culture back to the way it should be. As Christians, we stand on the word of God, whether it's popular or not. So Paul lists here slave trading. This is the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And he uses the word man stealer. So not just stealing a paper clip from work, not just stealing a cookie from a restaurant, but stealing people, slave trading. Paul says, if you steal people, if you're engaged in human trafficking on any level, that is a sin. And I know many are thinking here, well, man, I, don't, I haven't killed my parents. I haven't bought any slaves. I'm, I'm kind of scooting by here. This is kind of nice. Well, the ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so Paul says here, you shall not be a, the law is for liars. The law is for perjurers. And so this includes little white lies. This includes fudging your timesheet to get more money. This includes shifting some numbers on your tax return to get a bigger return. Anytime you lie, deceive, trick someone, Paul says the law shows you you are short of God's standard. A perjurer is a false swearer. This is when you say, I promise I'm telling the truth. I swear that's what happened. And you're doubling down on it. Paul says the law shows you that you fall short. He skips the 10th commandment. I don't know why. Yay, we get the covet. Woo, no. He already covered that in Romans 7, 7 that we read earlier. The law showed him that coveting was a sin. And so we can't covet either. But in case you're still so proud that, hey, I scooted by and James didn't get me, well, Paul just throws out the blanket whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. So he says if there's any verse in here that you fall short of, you're guilty of sin. And so again, this should humble us, drive us to our knees in repentance and gratitude that God could love me. And this is important. Two reasons why this is super important. Number one, sound doctrine is important for the gospel. Here's why. The gospel really translates, the literal translation is good news. The gospel is good news. Because what we see in the Bible is that God made Adam and Eve good in the Garden of Eden, but they disobeyed him. We disobey God. We've looked at a list of sins. All of us, you know, let's be honest, all of us, there's at least two or three or ten on there that we have disobeyed. And so because of that, we deserve separation from God in hell. The gospel is the good news that if I repent of my sin, if I see that list and say, man, I'm gonna, I've got to stop lying, that's not okay. If I repent of my sin, believe that Jesus died in my place, I can be saved to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. That's the gospel. When we start going through this list and saying what God calls sin, we start saying it's not actually sin. You don't actually need to repent of that. 
we are messing with the gospel. Because we are telling people, you don't actually have to repent when God is telling them that they do. And so this is a gospel issue, why we stand firm on the word of God. Sound doctrine is also important because it's about the glory of God. Because if I look at the Bible and say, hmm, God, I'll give you like a B plus. You know, there's a couple verses you probably should have left out and here's three or four that I would have added in there, but it was a good try. When I start doing that with the Bible, when I start taking out the parts that I don't like, getting my Sharpie out and crossing out verses, when I start taking these outside sources and bringing them in as God's truth, then suddenly it is not about the glory of God. It's about the glory of me because I've made myself God. I get to choose what's actually true in the Bible and what's not. I get to choose what God forgot to put in the Bible and what he didn't. I now have made it about the glory of James when it should be about the glory of the blessed God who loved me and sent his son to die for me. So right doctrine is important. It's important for the gospel. It's important for people's souls. It's important for the glory of God. My job, your job, Take what's given to us, what's in the pages of Scripture, pass it on to the next person. They take it, pass it on to the next person. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Don't modify it. Don't tweak it. Pass it on just as was given to us. So what does this mean for us? I think the first question as I read this is a question to ask myself. What am I devoted to? They were devoted to these outside things. That was their primary source that they spent all their time and energy on. Am I devoted to my favorite podcast person, YouTube star, TV personality, radio host? Am I devoted to them as a source of truth or am I devoted to scripture? And when those two don't agree, which one do I cling to as truth? What are you devoted to? And then second... When you come across a verse that you don't agree with, that you don't align with, and you're going to, if not today, next week, next month, next year, what are you going to do? Are you going to twist yourself to align with Scripture and say, God, your word's right? You know, Paul said, advancing God's worth is by faith. God, I don't understand why you have that verse in there. I don't like that verse but I trust that it is your word, and so I'm going to move myself to line up with your word. Or are you going to say, God, I don't like that verse, so I'm going to move your word to line up with me. Church, we stand firmly on the word of God. We don't fall off the cliff to the right by taking away. We don't fall off the cliff to the left by adding to it. We must Stand firmly on the word of God. Let's pray.